I've spoken about like that show, the Japanese show that tests different theories. And one of them was like, uh, can you form a relay race team with different generations from the same family? So you have to have at least four generations. Oh God. And so there, do I have four? I mean, I get no shoot. Yeah, I don't have four generations that have that could perform in a relay race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in I Japan, I got three. <laughs> but the the think, the fourth yeah, the fourth on do. the old stage, she's like missing her knees and her hips now. I don't think she's going to be getting around very good in the relay race. Right. That's that's the that's the issue. So there's, you know, in Japan, people live so much longer just from diet and everything, which you know I'm sure we can get into today some. Um, but there's also you know just some some cultures i guess especially in rural areas that it's like yeah i had my kid when i was 19 and my kid had her kid when she was 19 and um she had her kid when she was 16 so like you know the oldest one is like 60 yeah yeah <laughs> and, and, and it's, and it's a doing. double and she's already a great grandmother <laughs> right <laughs> but they they uh they did it and i think the they, you know, one of those teams just like lapped the other, like, you know, somebody else who has like an 85 year old, they're not mm, going to come mm. close to somebody who's like 60 something. Yeah. Yeah. You, you would have been better off like, uh, leaving the 85 year old home and bringing out like the three year old great, great grandkid to come out and be on your team rather than yeah. the 85 year old grandma. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, cause all you have to do once your kid can like, you know, then you get to the thing, can a, can a kid, can a child crawl faster than a 90 year old can walk a hundred meters? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but that, that's the same show that tested the theory of, um, I think it was the same show that tested the theory of could a pitcher strike out a, like a toddler <laughs> because their strike zone is so small. <laughs> Because that's the that's the issue, the, right? The small strike zone. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a great theory. <laughs> so they're like throwing, you know, like eighty five miles an hour. They have the kid um, behind like plexiglass at least, but... <laughs> just in case. So then, they, so the kid can't swing. You know, that maybe the kid no, can't get have... struck out because the kid can hit it. <laughs> well yeah the kid i guess cannot make contact you're right <laughs> but they did give them like a little you know t-ball wiffle ball thing for toddlers mm-hmm. and uh you know one of the kids like turns to see his mom every time the ball is thrown so he does swing it's a strike <laughs> What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything like kids with decoders discover the Oh, 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 oh,
yeah, the uh, like just as far as like cultural differences, like the I wonder if you know part of the age related cultural differences and maybe why people get so much more into like the cultish followings of western music and other things in japan is like uh how how, how come they got so so much fewer alcoholics than everywhere else <laughs> yeah what, what 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 how come japan don't like drink alcohol so much <laughs> <laughs> well although japan does drink a ton there's that is one of the things that like is strange about learning about like the genetic um you know predisposition where what is it in like is it 50 percent of people in east asia have at least one of the aldh genes um mutated so that they can't break down and they have a buildup of aldehyde right which means they have a way worse time on alcohol but the result yeah. of that is that mo- they just don't drink it. So you have like t- whatever twenty eight percent fewer alcoholics right, in Japan yeah. than in any Western countries. Yeah, the the although I mean I don't know because the drinking's like a huge cultural thing for companies. Like companies will have parties all the time where all of the employees go out, and that's the only place really that the employees like let loose that you know the bone and kai like is one of them yeah yeah like, yeah that we do every year um <clears throat> but drinking is you know in korean culture i think like drinking games and stuff and like drinking to get drunk is kind of a, a thing that people do for camaraderie um but in japan drinking with food is like a huge thing mm-hmm. um obviously they have like non-alcoholic beers and stuff but um it's one of those things where if you only have if you have two of them that are bad then like you can't drink and there's some people that we know that have that i'm pretty sure one of my friends in college um had that because he you know on like my birthday i talked him into like having a shot and i think he had maybe half a shot and within 20 minutes he was like doing the robot in the living room and was like <laughs> just totally gone um, but then he started like getting really itchy and everything. And then I don't even think he could go out to the bar with us because he started feeling so bad. Jeez. Whereas, just your, your body's like, oh, so cool. Uh, alcohol. What if I just made that incredibly toxic? <laughs> yeah. And um, then there's some people that they get like the kind of, you know, flushness of, of skin turning red, sometimes get itchy might be a little nauseous or headache especially um but can keep drinking some like it's like not as bad and then they're probably much more prone to like a hangover the next day um but it's not like i don't know i think like in japan that's kind of a it's weird at work because being tired at work doesn't mean you're a bad employee it translates to being a good employee Okay. Because you're putting in so much work that you're tired. Like there are people who like some companies prefer if people sleep at the, at their desk during the day, because that just shows like how dedicated they are to the company. <laughs> that, that's how hard the hardcore, the grind culture mentality is over in Japan. Right. But it's obviously not a healthy thing. And you know, there's like the death from overwork issue. Are people um, quiet quitting in Japan? 
you know? With the virus, I know that like the suicide rate went really far down and, you know, working is, I think, a pretty big cause of the suicide rate there because you're, you burn out and then fail your fail a project or whatever yeah if you're working like 100 hour weeks which is not healthy it's certainly something the government is like don't do that but every company will look you over for any opportunity if you don't that's the expectation um and with uh the virus people were working at home and people were like spending more time with their families and stuff which is also something that's interesting is like a lot of the times people will like move from their family they'll have like kids uh, Mm -hmm. in one city and because it's kind of the way that the culture still is like the wife will be watching the kids in this kind of you know farther away city but the husband will go to tokyo and like have an apartment in tokyo and live there and then like travel back for holidays or whatever um Which is okay. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's kind of like, I mean, I guess like, if the point of the, having a family was having another reason to work more hours longer. I, I guess that's, that's the good, that's a good reason to have a family to give you motivation to work more. <laughs> I mean, having a family is also something that's, that's, I think, culturally different too. That, um, like obviously having a descendant for your name used to be a huge deal. And I think culturally it just still kind of lingers that people want to be able to pass on their name. That's why, like when we talked to spoke about adoption, I can't even remember if I mentioned it, but Japan has like one of the highest adoption rates, I think in the world, but it's adult adoptions Uh. where if you're like the first son in a, in a family, the way that it works out is the first son gets all of the inheritance and the next kids are at the you know whim of the first son okay so if you got a shitty older brother you might want to get adopted (laughs) right so that so that you can then have like the inheritance so if somebody like but the way that it typically works is um like the second son would marry somebody who only had a daughter or daughters and they want to pass on their name and um so then the son adopts their name and okay. like gets their inheritance or whatever so is um, the inheritance only through like uh the the paternal connection or the male the male line as far as i know i mean i'm not i'm certainly not an expert on it but it i'm pretty sure that's how it is and i think like one of my one of miho's like grandfathers uh did that was adopted that okay. way um, so it's also interesting when you get to like the tracing family lineage. Yeah, genealogy's kind of got to be weird. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean, I forgot what I was going to say, but the, the, you know, people sort of drinking is a big part of the social life, <laughs> I guess. So <laughs> it is weird, but because it's so safe in Japan, it is, um, okay that people can get sloshed so easily. Like, I mean, okay as in, like, they're not going to get robbed. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're not going to get stabbed because they fell asleep on the street. Like, we woke up at our apartment in the morning, and there was a guy sleeping in the driveway of, like, the parking spot that we had. Not for us, but 
there was one parking spot for the entire apartment building. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the way it should be. Just, yeah, woke him up and he was like, he was like, oh, I'm okay. We're like, okay, don't die here. <laughs> so you don't have, um, you don't have cops like busting up drunk people's heads on the curb. Yeah, no, the cops, know. surprisingly, um, no, for a state that has so many cops all over the place, or a country, I guess. Um, yeah, people are, the cops will like help people get to the train that they need to get to um, or like drive them home or like let them stay at the, they have Kobans, which are just kind of like smaller police stations, it's typically occupied by like two cops at any one time. So one of them can kind of be out and the other one can kind of be there um, or around the area. And yeah, it's very very weird interacting with cops there because they're um surprisingly helpful <laughs> coming from the u.s it's like such a like is there an ulterior motive here <laughs> they're just out to make sure people don't litter like it's like their number one goal of yeah. the day <laughs> i mean that was i i we had a koban like right by the crosswalk to get to the train station we would take every morning so we would see them all the time and um, I was taking the dogs out once. So that is to say, like, I knew exactly where the cops were. I was taking the dogs out once and, um, uh, I was walking in like an alley behind our apartment building and there was like the heap of trash. And I saw like a, a clothes washer there, um, like a washing machine and a bunch of other junk. And I was like, that's weird. Somebody would just throw this here. And then I looked down and there's like a rifle and, Japan famous oh, for shit. no guns. Allowed. Right, right, right. <laughs> and um, so I was like, and you know, again, as I spoke about, we're right by the the Pentagon um, area, and there's a lot of right wing people in that area. Dude, they're setting you up. <laughs> you yeah, would pick exactly. that gun up immediately. A hundred cops would rush in. <laughs> this is the American who was trying to assassinate. <laughs> right. Um, and I think it was maybe like a few months before Obama was going to come through and he like went by our street, um, you know, just in the motorcade or whatever, but still. And we're close to a, a bunch of government buildings and the right wingers in Japan, um, unlike America, the right wingers are not pro-government like there are right-wing government people um but the right-wingers i'm talking about are like pro-emperor and like okay think the government is like this false state set up by the u.s i wonder where they got that idea who could who could know um <laughs> and so it's you know i <laughs> listen i've grown up in texas i grew up with uh somebody who collected guns for bad reasons i've seen plenty of guns it looked like a real rifle to me um and so i like walked by the cop station and they weren't there luckily <laughs> and i called miho and she's like don't talk to the cops like you don't know how to speak japanese yeah you'd be <laughs> like, like i have a, a gun very good point. i've been planning on shooting it <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> there's a gun over here you want to come see you want to come um, see my gun <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> and so she like came down and like spoke to the cops or whatever, and then, uh, took the dogs back and we got ready for work and we we're walking by and there were tons of cops there whenever we were leaving and we kind of walked by and the cop like saw us and he was just like, it's a fake gun. Don't worry. It's a fake gun. <laughs> and it's like, then why do you have this 
like <laughs> you know police scene set up and nobody's allowed in that yeah alley, yeah right? they, they have they have uh they have one of those bomb robots like the dpd has right. you know but it's just to t- see if a gun is real <laughs> they wheel it in from like 200 yards away to test the gun to see if it's working <laughs> yeah i mean back and, then to they, like- and then and then they have a controlled detonation device that the that the that the bomb squad robot places on the gun to just blow up the gun just in case <laughs> Well, they, you know, obviously, like the, they put too, they put too much power in it, and it, it actually, it accidentally damaged like twenty homes in the neighborhood surrounding area. Yes, yeah, the LAPD <laughs> trained them. Um, the the thing with guns, like, I don't know if I think this is the law, but like, even the uh, yakuza, like the mafia, there are. You you could safely assume they're not going to shoot you, <laughs> like which feels very opposite. They're much more. Yeah, like I mean they got targets. You're down. not you're not one of them. Right, right. But it feels different. Like when you're there's like an area called Kabukicho, which is in Shibu, uh, Shinjuku, and it has like a bunch of the kind of clubs, and it's known that like they're all owned by the yakuza. And okay, it's the kind of clubs that like. Like there's a lot of, you know, girl bars or host bars, hostess bars where people go to and then you pay an exorbitant fee, like one or two hundred dollars an hour or maybe like fifty dollar drink per drink or whatever. But then like, you know, whatever type of bar it is, like that type of person will sit there and talk to you and be your companion or whatever. Oh. Um and those are like in that area. I think like if, you know, non-Japanese people go into them, it's like you might get drugged and you might be forced to pull out all of your money from your credit card or whatever at their ATM. And then what are you going to do? Tell the cops and the cops are going to be like, you spent the money at this bar. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, it's weird walking around that area because there's people that you can tell are like the kind of street level people. Okay. But they're not going to pull a gun out because I think the law is like if one person, because the cops know who like all the members of the Yakuza are. um, If one of the people has like a gun or a gun offense or something like that, the entire organization gets like, Oh, it's the old minor in possession of alcohol law. If there's a, if there's a keg in the apartment, even if you're not drinking, (laughs) even if there's a bunch (laughs) of minors there and none of them are drinking, Whoever brought the keg gets the charge of uh, supplying alcohol to a bunch of minors, even if none of the miners drank. Right. Everyone might as well have drank. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is what we would always say at the parties to all the miners, like, you guys might as well drink because we're going to get in trouble if for <laughs> that, that, that you were drinking, even if you don't. So fucking party up. <laughs> I think... I mean that's a good jumping off point for this one. Did so, you... Yeah. How, how many... Uh, how many experiences did you have in, in your youth as a minor just, you know, loving alcohol? So, um, let's see. I didn't, you know, I think my parents had, like, my mom, my so my parents were very against alcohol when they were together. Um, my dad swears he never had a drop of alcohol until he was, like, 42 or 43. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure now he drinks a ton. Um, but you know, probably having multiple adult children no longer speak to you might, might do that. You got to find friends. (laughs) 
And so my mom would waver between and you know, I've spoken about her having uh fits of Christianity, <laughs> I'll call them. Um and so she would sometimes be like like whenever she started dating my stepdad, uh my stepdad drank beer and that was like the first time I ever saw alcohol in the house, except for maybe like glass bottle like rum or whatever up high in the pantry in case they had like a party of people or whatever um and so that was um like shocking to me when i was in the third grade but then i like saw oh okay he uh he just sneezes louder whenever he drinks so and his sneezes were unbearable to listen to um (laughs) so i started having like interaction with it and i think you know my mom would just kind of be like oh here you can try this or whatever and didn't really like it and i didn't drink until college but again you know i've mentioned this before but my entire family thought that i was doing ecstasy whenever i went to the lizard lounge you know (laughs) like they all thought that i was on drugs the only reason to go into the city was to do drugs (laughs) Right, yeah. Why? Why else would you leave the sanctity of Corinth, Texas? Um, and so, and, and at school too, people thought I did drugs. I don't know. I've been told that my eyes are like kind of smaller, like look sleepier. Like I literally cannot open my eyes very, very wide. <laughs> well, see, that, um, that's that's what you do whenever you go into any like new job or n- new situation with like. Uh, girlfriends parents or whatever you always show up there fucking stoned or like (laughs) drunk out of your mind so then every every time they see you they're like oh that's just his face i'm not they never see you like have this bright eye bushy tailed bushy tailed look to like weigh that against when you're fucked up because you know every time you're going to interact with them you're going to be fucked up so just (laughs) new you're starting a new job go to your new job fucking stoned out of your mind so that you can just go there every day like that and everyone will treat you normally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think in college, whenever I near the end of my freshman year, um, when I was probably 19, uh, is whenever I like started drinking or like going to parties or whatever. And you know, that was, um, not a safe time. <laughs> Certainly not not recommending it. But everyone's who's listened to this has probably been to college in Texas and you were a pro understands. at that point. Though. <laughs> I was what you were a pro at drinking at that point, though. Yeah, you, yeah. Well, you only forgot how to drink recently. <laughs> well, I just mean like uh, getting home, <laughs> <laughs> um, running from the cops, those sorts of things. Uh, so it was it was that kind of you know. Um, because I also joined a fraternity the next semester. Um, so I'd like had been going to their parties and then all that kind of stuff. I think they're shut down at the school now. So, um, wonder why, but Mm -hmm. they, they were happy to supply drinks. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I started drinking around that time and, um, learned very quickly that I could like not healthily, but get totally blackout drunk and then be fine the next day maybe like you know kind of like my eyelids are like heavy 
um, mm-hmm. but not at all incapacitated. <laughs> what about yourself? Well, I started drinking probably, let's see, like 14. I'd had right. like tastes of beer and wine and stuff like that from my parents beforehand. Um, but like me and my buddy Robert, who is the guy who lived next door to me, uh, we go over to his the one with the dad with the truck. Yeah, yeah, with the dad with the truck. <laughs> he, uh, we go over to his cousin's house, um, because his cousin was a few years older than us, and he was like a he was a baseball pitcher for Sam Houston State, and so he would he had like lots of access to beer and cool things. So every time we go over and hang out with him, it's just like. He'd the you'd walk through the door and you'd know, get hit in the chest with a can of Miller Lite, expected to like drink it once you walked into the apartment type of thing. So that was the first time, and I remember those first few times where you're like, "Yeah, man, I'm cool," and like you drink it, and then you like just kind of take a few sips, and then you're trying to be the person that like sneakily like, "Where am I gonna put this half full can of beer?" Because I don't really want to drink it <laughs> and you're yeah, like trying yeah. to like hide it places and you're trying to oh i just got to go take a piss and you like go to the bathroom and you pour it down the, the drain because you don't want to be the guy who left like a half full beer somewhere <laughs> like the the pussy kid who couldn't who couldn't house a beer <laughs> <laughs> so you know that was the first few times like you figure out how to how to get rid of half of it because you just didn't really even like the taste of it that much um but really where i started getting into alcohol was like 16 years old uh, going over to my friend's Aunt Anthony's house, and uh, his dad was real into Jack Daniels, and he would have you know bottles of Jack in the liquor cabinet and stuff. So whenever they would go out, uh, his parents would go out, and we'd just be staying over at his house. We'd always do shots of Jack, and then refill the bottle with water, you know, so he wouldn't know that we had been taking it. Right, and it just gets uh, clearer <laughs> yeah, and it clearer. Just gets, it just slowly <laughs> watered down the bottle of Jack. Um, yeah, and so like though that sixteen was the was the year when I just like went whole whole hog on alcohol and cigarettes, and I was just like dove in both feet. Like this is me. I'm just going to be the guy who drinks whiskey and smokes cigarettes. <laughs> <clears throat> so I I maintained that like all the way into college and through most of college, uh, like that level of drinking and partying and stuff and at that and I really kind of got off of beer for a while in college just because we would drink bud ice 40s all the fucking time um and why didn't you go with the champagne of beers my personal favorite (laughs) see that that's that that was the thing is like I I was totally cool drinking like the bud ice 40s and those were like way more alcohol content but if I drank like regular Budweiser or old school Miller or fucking uh, uh, Yellow Belly Coors, original Coors Light or whatever, I would get headaches off of that shit. And it wasn't like a, I never would have described it as a hangover. I just like would have a fucking headache and it wouldn't even be like the next day. It would be while I was drinking. Like I just, my head would start pounding. So I didn't know why any of that was happening, but that's why I kind of got off beer and was just like, I'm just a fucking whiskey man. Um, and, uh, so then the first real hangover I ever had, and it was also the worst hangover of my life was on my wedding day. And wait uh, on the wedding day on the wedding day. Yeah. Cause we did, we did like the bachelor party the night before, you know, like you're supposed to. 
I, d- I don't know because I've never had a wedding. So. Oh, okay. Well, when you have w- when you do it, you know, when you get it all formally taken care of, you know, you have to do your bachelor party the day before the wedding, so that then you know your your wife hasn't seen you now for like thirty six hours. And it's about to be time, you know, to show up to the place. And she's like frantically calling all your friends like, well, where's John? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, he's fine. You we got him. He's fine. And I'm not fine. I'm actually in the fetal position and in, in the bathroom hugging the toilet as they're like feeding me Pedialyte, hoping that this will get, get, get me better <laughs> because they're the ones who put me in this situation. I was not in control of who, what drinks I was taking and at what time and knowing when it was my turn to stop and start to wind down the drinking that evening. It was these other people that were just mainlining this shit into my system. So if I died, it was going to be on them. Um, but yeah, that was awful. So, uh, we showed up, I showed up to the Arboretum, you know, hour before the ceremony starts and I've just been eating like one of the big, biggest big gulp cups you could have of just ice chips. I've just been doing that the whole time. (laughs) And, um, so it's at the Arboretum in Dallas and like, uh, 10 minutes before the wedding, I'm still puking. Like anything that goes inside me is just coming right back out. I'm puking in all the bushes, all the flower beds of the Arboretum. It's really great. Um, If you see pictures of my wedding, I am almost translucent. I'm so pale because of all the the nausea. But somehow I got through the ceremony. I did not puke in Nikki's mouth when we had to kiss or anything like that. Um, I, I had enough... I had rehydrated myself enough that I did manage a few tears during the ceremony. Well, a lot of tears during the ceremony. I had no idea where it came from because I felt so dehydrated and cramped up. But somehow, tears still happened. Those still work. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Uh, And then the whole reception, I didn't drink anything but Avion. Just I had a bottle of glass bottle of Avion water walking around, like sipping it like it was champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was the worst hangover I ever had. Um, also the first hangover I ever had, like nowadays I'm older and I feel like after drinking takes more of a toll on me, but I've never had a hangover that was like, man, maybe we need to go to the hospital like that one was. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, I hope to never reach that point. Um, you know, I had always just, uh, blamed it on being Irish like being able to not have a hangover. I, I, was, which, I was born with a blood alcohol content of 0.08. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was one of those things that just never really happened. But um, obviously with age, those things change, I think. But I recently, uh, well, not recently, but like over the last few years have like really cut back on drinking like i i used to drink ipas and now they're just disgusting because everybody's just trying to make the most bitter ipa yeah yeah because they've all they've they've all destroyed their their taste buds and their their all the stuff in their nasal cavity for by having such ibu high concentrate that now they have to like max it out to taste anything they're basically like coal miners who have to put like the highest concentration of all like sriracha pepper and stuff on their food to taste anything at all at this point yeah it's it's disgusting (laughs) the direction (laughs) that craft beer has gone um but there's you know the other thing is like i 
you know, I don't, I don't know how many years it's been, but I was like, I don't really like it, it does take a lot of alcohol for me to get drunk. Um, and whenever you're going out with friends or whatever, that, that costs way more. And then you're just kind of like, well, why would I want to spend that much to like get drunk? Like, I don't actually care about getting drunk, especially if I'm with like adults. (laughs) Yeah. I care, I care more about the $150 than paying $150 bar tab to get close to being drunk. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, and you know, I, I typically would like drink beer just cause I don't, you know, drinking a, a cocktail or whatever is, I don't know, that, that feels like you're just trying to consume alcohol versus oh, like, oh, you know, kind of having the taste. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's cool if you smoke a little weed mixed in with your tobacco and your cigarettes. But if you're over here, like free basing crack cocaine, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> I'm not saying drawing the line, but it's just for me personally. You you uh, fucking guys with your fucking mixed drinks are fucking junkies. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um and recently I've found like or looked for, I guess, the lower alcohol content, like you know, pale ales or sours or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um there's a sour that is like my favorite. Uh, from this place called Modern Times that also makes coffee down in San Diego. And I think it's like 4.2% or something. Okay. Um, So it, you know, tricks my brain or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, so that's probably my first favorite beer. And my second favorite is uh, from this place called Athletic Brewing. And uh, it's their Upside Dawn, which is a golden ale, but it's non-alcoholic and it is it is the best tasting non-alcoholic but it is in my top three of favorite beers like it is it just tastes great um and so i've you know mixed that in way more uh recently and i suppose that has uh done a number on my tolerance um (laughs) Which, Your body you know, just hasn't been in practice need, needing to uh, break down all this ethanol. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I, it's not like, you know, obviously whenever I was like 20, I would brag about how much I could drink, but looking back on how much I drank in college, like it was obviously a very unhealthy amount. Now mix that in with depression and did it at least uh, keep me from, you know, offing myself sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, there is a there is a trade off. Um, I think you know there's a mountain goat song about that. Uh, so the the tolerance has certainly gone down over the years, and then mixed with age, it's probably caught up to me to where this past weekend um, was the first. So Miho's parents are living with us, and um, they like went back to Japan for a few months to like take care of some. Uh, like moving kind of stuff and um the first weekend after they were gone uh there was like a lot of you know we're moving around the apartment building or apartment uh unit because we're moving rooms we're moving into their room because it's easier to take the dogs out and all this kind of stuff which is riveting podcasting (laughs) but we were busy give give me a layout of the apartment (laughs) and so (laughs) so then uh, this was like our first full weekend kind of of like just us two and relaxing. And typically when they're eating with us, like we'll 
easily down drinks because her parents like to drink too. Um, and that's the only way you can stand being around them, right? <laughs> no, no. Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> the in-law jokes, guys. It's funny. Yes. <laughs> But my in-laws are the best parents I've ever interacted yeah, yeah, with. Yeah, you're right, so, right. There you go. Um, and so the in my brain, I think it was a mix of finally like relaxing, my brain not remembering like my consumption is not related to how much alcohol is in the bottle, you know? Right. Like um <laughs> Typically, when it's all of us around, like you're just kind of pouring nonstop for for everyone. Not nonstop, but you know, it's like it's flowing. Yeah. Uh, and I drank way too much wine in like an hour and a half. Um, you know, probably did the majority of like two, like one bottle of aquapazza, which is like a sparkling wine kind of thing, and then one bottle of thick red wine as I grilled steaks. And um, yeah, I that was. Uh, I puked that night, which, you know, I don't ever go for it, but I have been known to puke at night. That'll happen. Um, <laughs> you know, in in college, I would definitely make myself throw up. And I'm sure my roommates who were um, never drank loved hearing me puke and then eat my tortilla chips in the bathroom. <laughs> um, Just got to get something on my stomach. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just got to hold something down. Yeah. Uh, the the mission tortilla strips with like the the is it from tostitos but the spinach artichoke dip in the jar yeah that was oh yeah go-to. yeah 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 um and but then i was like okay well then you know the spinning will kind of stop and i was able you know i'm laying like in the fetal position but with my like on all fours and then eventually my muscles just give out and i fall over and i fall asleep right right um, so hate being in that position, but it's happened before. It doesn't happen often. Um, like, you know, maybe the good once thing, or twice a year. The good thing about that position is that when you're on that cold tile floor and you're all curled up in a cramped spot and you kind of fall over on your side, it's not comfortable, but the discomfort of laying in that position distracts your brain just enough from the yeah. spinniness and the nausea and the other things going on that you're like, man, I'm glad I'm focusing on this really uncomfortable hip pointer pain I'm having from laying my, <laughs> right. laying my bare hip right on right on this hard towel floor. Man, yeah. that's, that's a really good pain to focus on. I'm just going to think about that for a while. <laughs> Uh, I do more of the like praying position. Um, okay. <laughs> like I'm on both knees and both elbows. Um, but I, I, the point still stands. Yeah. The, the worst thing is like when you're laying on your side and you know, you have the spins and like the, you know, fire detector or the smoke alarm light is just spinning around. Oh yeah. As you the, look up, it, you catch it in the center of your vision, but you can't equalize your yeah. vision. <laughs> but the worst is whenever you like, your brain is like, okay, I can follow this. All right. We're getting out of the spins and then you lose it and it yeah, just goes yeah, like yeah, 10 yeah. times faster. <laughs> so I avoid that with that position. Um, but then the next morning I like, you know, didn't feel great in my head, which more recently has happened before where it's not a headache that I would describe as debilitating at all, but it's like kind of like a, just kind of warm, warm feeling that throb and had to take the dogs out, fed the dogs and everything. 
And Miho's like, are you feeling all right? And I'm like, no, not great, but we can just watch some morning TV, put it on. And then it just like starts to hit me like, you're going to start feeling worse. (laughs) And so then it just came to me and I was like, I think I need to lay back down. And so then I was back on the bed in that position. And I was like, I think I'm going to puke. So I had never thrown up um, the morning after drinking. And I threw up twice that morning. Um, So that was my Labor Day. And, you know, even like I remember the first time I actually got drunk was after I had broken my leg, I was over at my friend's house. So I was on painkillers and he had started drinking at college and he was like, let's drink. I learned all this, you know, these different drinks to do. Yeah. Cool. So, cool. Cool. Cool thing to uh, mix painkillers with alcohol your first time. Yes. That's an advanced um, move. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely puked that day too. Uh, but, but the next morning, it was the day before Thanksgiving. So I had to drive to Plano mm. and my dad was pissed that I was late and I probably reeked of amaretto or uh, yeah, amaretto. Oh yeah. So. I'm sure you were still sweating it out. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I had to sit with, uh, his college friend and his parents at Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and not eat anything. Um, you want some more marshmallows really on like the it. top of your sweet potatoes, honey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dry ham really goes well <laughs> after a night of painkillers and alcohol. Uh, so that was like where I was recently. So I texted you, um, my confidant. Uh, my my good time guy who would never make me talk about this in public. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just pitching me show ideas. Right. You're just um, like, I, w- I was going through a few experiences this weekend, just trying to come up with content for the show. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got one. <laughs> so that was an experiment. And now that I know... Um, what goes on scientifically, I would love to talk about it. Well, that's that's my big question. So, like, when I'm going through these types of, um, you know, moments of physical distress, not necessarily just a hangover, but any time, you know, you're going through, like, a severe physical pain or you just broke your arm and you're processing the pain and that type of stuff, The where my mind goes to cope with it is, like, I kind of suddenly float outside of my body and become like this objective observer of my experience, like as if I was like a scientist, like taking notes on this subject that's in the laboratory, like, okay, let's do some observations about what's going on here. This is what we're feeling. What could be the cause of that? And, you know, I start breaking it down in my mind because just going to that, like going to that place of like analytical thinking also helps me get out of like the, uh, uh, obsessive, oh my God, I'm going to die feeling <laughs> too. So I do that with a lot of things. Like when I've recovered from surgery, uh, uh, when I'm dealing with just pain in general, like I always have this weird scientist observer like outside of me that's like, okay, and let's, let's just, let's just trace this down. Let's, let's, let's do the full experiment and understand what's going on rather than praying to God for it to stop. Yeah. I, do not do that. I mean, I, I have like enough, um, you know, hi- human physiology background and all that kind of stuff that like I can kind of figure out what is going on, but I am not there to analyze it. So that's 
It's definitely different. I mean, those, uh, I'll give you my other coping mechanism later on. But you, you, you tell me, you tell me uh, what you learned since you weren't well, coping by learning. <laughs> yeah, so I, I learned yesterday. <laughs> um, I mean, it was a flashback to again human physiology and biochemistry. Uh, and you know, it, I this one's interesting because I feel like it ties in so much with all of the other biology we talk about, especially last week. Yeah, I mean, even the electron transport chain and mitochondria, like this goes back to that and to just basic diffusion that we talked about with, yeah. the, with the breathing system and everything. Yeah, it's, it's something that, um, you know, like learning this kind of stuff, I think can be useful for people who are interested in like learning about uh, the body or how something works um, just because it's so you can almost like when it's so tangible, something that like people have, you know, been drinking a lot, you know, if you don't drink, I'm sorry. I hope this episode isn't like a bad one for you to listen to (laughs) if you're even still listening to it. Um, But it's one of those things that I think people can almost tangibly understand, you know, working through the different levels Mm -hmm. of it and where symptoms and stuff comes from. Um, so I really looked into like alcohol, uh, in the body to begin with and starting with alcohol absorption. Um, so, you know, the journey of ethanol through the body. Uh, so, I, there's different things and I'm sure it'll come up every now and then like ways to prevent a hangover or ways to, um, treat a hangover or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the the short story is like what causes a hangover is still kind of up for debate they're they're pretty sure that like aldehyde is kind of the cause for it but they think it might also be an inflammation response um so your own body is just like punishing you yeah um not consciously but it just is and the start of it starts at you know the stomach where you're you're drinking alcohol And I learned that the rate of absorption of ethanol into your body depends on the gastric emptying rate, so how fast your stomach empties into your small intestine, and the ethanol concentration, uh, which is kind of obvious, you know? Right. You down a bottle of Jack immediately versus you, you know, sip a non-alcoholic beer that has less than 0.5%. That's going to affect how much alcohol you're getting because it's literally just the amount of alcohol you're consuming right and the difference of drinking on a full stomach or drinking on an empty stomach also can directly change like the the content of the alcohol inside your stomach as it pours out right and that's that's one of the things that um people are sort of guessing at whenever they're thinking like this will help Mm -hmm. uh hangovers or getting drunk or whatever is uh, having food on your stomach and, you know, everyone sort of knows if you're, if you drink on an empty stomach, you're going to get drunk faster. Well, the stomach, the way that it is, and because ethanol is such a small chemical and it can, uh, you know, I forgot what the word is, but it can dissolve in water totally fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's soluble. There you go. Um, and you have no ethanol in your bloodstream. Um, we don't, we don't just have natural ethanol, not even the Irish. (laughs) No, no, unfortunately, uh, 
that's just a racist trope that you keep pushing. Um, <laughs> and my people on this day especially <laughs> this will day not especially. stand for it. Well, this is supposed <sighs> to be your victory day. Sorry. Sorry, guys. The queen's I dying. Yeah. I don't, by the time you listen to this, <laughs> she might be dead. So if you notice that we're just smiling through through all of this hangover talk, now you know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <clears throat> the having food on your stomach... Um, is is something to uh consider because you're again you have no blood in your no alcohol in your blood so the alcohol will just immediately diffuse into your blood mm-hmm. because it is so much higher concentration i mean the percentage of ethanol in your stomach compared to your bloodstream is 100 to 0 right so, so it'll, diffusion that we learned diffusion. last week it naturally <laughs> wants to go to the place where it's less popular less concentrated Right. So it flows into your bloodstream and 20% of the ethanol you consume can be absorbed through your stomach into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's 20% because, you know, we know the stomach is like very thick musculature. So it's not like a, it's not a thin wall. So the ethanol has a hard time, you know, burrowing through um, to the bloodstream, but 20%, that's a huge amount. The other thing with food on your stomach is um, the sphincter, the sphincter is just like a circular muscle in your body. Um, and you got a lot, of you them. have, you have a ton, uh, that's kind of how like things get passed between your, uh, intestinal tract. You're and just a so, big tube. So you got to have a couple spots where you can open and close the tube every once in a while. <laughs> right. You do not want just an open <laughs> tube the entire time. Yeah. Um, and the one that connects your stomach to your small intestine is called the gastric sphincter. And whenever you drink on an empty stomach, ethanol is not a large enough chemical to trigger your stomach to send a signal for that muscle to contract and hold it in the stomach. So on an empty stomach, ethanol will just immediately start flowing into your small intestine. It just pours right in. And on... Uh, you know, with food in your stomach, that sphincter is closed because you don't, obviously food gets broken down in the stomach. It gets, you know, mashed up by the muscles and broken up by the proteins and everything and the acids and whatnot. Um, But that's like the main reason for you getting drunk faster on an empty stomach. Yeah. And Um, so, and once it gets to the small intestine, the membrane of the small intestine is not nearly as thick and robust as the membrane in the stomach. So then you're, you're talking about direct diffusion of almost the rest of all the ethanol right into your bloodstream. Yeah. When you're talking about the, the GI tract, the small intestine is where you absorb most of the nutrients. Um, and the small intestine is the really long one, but it's really thin. So that's why it's called the small intestine versus the large intestine, which is much thicker, uh, but shorter. Mm-hmm. And the large intestine, I think, is just for, you know, like stool formation mostly by like the the extraction of water, pretty much. Um, I don't think there's, you know, there's nutrients, obviously, that are going to get pulled out, but it's not nowhere near the same amount as a small intestine because the small intestine comes first and small intestine similar to you know the lungs it's just wrapped in capillaries because you need these very thin walls for nutrients to pass through you know um in comparison like you know ethanol has what two carbons and an oxygen Mm -hmm. and then a bunch of hydrogens hanging about 
um, compared to like glucose that has however many carbons. I forget. It's what is it? It's uh, is it eleven? Much larger. <laughs> Much larger. Yeah. Okay. So it's six. Okay, but six and it's six carbons. Um, what is the one I'm? Oh, I'm thinking of like fructose. Maybe I don't know. Whatever, uh, sue me. So there's six carbons there. So it's much larger, but you get glucose pulled out in your small intestine, you know? Um, so you need to be able to have those things diffuse in the small intestine. So everything pulled out of the liver, or pulled out of the, into the bloodstream goes to the liver. Um, this is through the hepatic portal vein. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, veins, we call veins because they, are uh what is it they're taking stuff to something kind of like to the heart i think mainly um and so you like like the the arteries are nice and thick but the veins are kind of thin um because they don't have as much pressure going through them um except for well whatever i don't I didn't even study that. Why am I trying to pull stuff <laughs> up right now? No, no, bro, no, no. Tell us, tell us a bunch of stuff you didn't study. Yeah. <laughs> so that only happened ten years ago. Um, so the the liver is, you know, where all this stuff gets filtered out, and this is where the breakdown of alcohol occurs. Um, there's multiple passes through the liver. The all of the ethanol you consume does not immediately get broken down in the liver because there's probably going to be too much of it you know even on just one drink alone mm-hmm. um and, and it, so, it lines up it, it it gets in the queue you know like it's right. trying to get in the club and they do all the right. all the ethanol just lines up waiting its turn to get processed by the liver and the liver's waiting like hold turn. on hold on yeah. hold on we're full right now we're full <laughs> right now just keep backing that up just keep backing up yeah it's uh it's it's mayhem in there with the ethanol molecules. Um, <laughs> they're bouncing around. They're going through the bloodstream. Some of them get pulled out to get processed by, um, you know, the hepatic cells. Um, hepatic just refers to the liver. Um, I'll probably go back and forth sometimes, but I don't know if that's that common of a term. Okay. Um, so just to lay that groundwork. But not all of it is metabolized in the liver on the first pass. Um, the ethanol blood, so blood that still has ethanol in it, flows into the hepatic vein and then into the inferior vena cava uh, that is where blood gets drawn into the heart and then pumped to the lungs. So this is how you get ethanol that goes to the rest of your body Mm -hmm. is it's not getting pulled out immediately um, by the liver. It's going to make it up to your brain. And the brain is like a, has a very strong blood brain barrier where stuff does not pass through um ethanol somehow got grandfathered in and can pass through it's very just easily. it's just cute and just like we talked about at the beginning it was when uh you know humans were being designed and they were everyone was really into cute small stuff and they're like well let's look at the cute the cute small one he can come through he's cute right, and right. small we're into cute <laughs> stuff <laughs> so uh so the blood you know or the ethanol wreaks havoc on your brain um and you know, I meant to look up uh, if it does kill brain cells because I remember growing up that was the big thing. It's I, um, it does, but it's got to be a whole lot, and it's okay. got to be prolonged use, which is like what a bunch of the cautionary tales and a lot of this is like. Hey, you know, 
your body can do a really good job of filtering out and you can have a bad hangover and you could still be fine. But you do this every day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you will destroy your brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I, I went to the doctor in Japan for like a health checkup and um, yeah, they're, you know, they have the how many drinks do you have per day or whatever. And, you know, at the time I put like, you know, two to three or something and the doctor did not like really speak English, but that was the one time he looked at me and he goes, this don't <laughs> <laughs> see, see that, that was the, one of the funny things that I found in, in one of the, I can't remember the university now that was reading the study on it, but they, they said like, you know, you go to the doctor, you take those surveys and everyone all, you know, usually lies and says they drink less than they do or whatever. I always, I'm always incredibly accurate on that stuff because I'm always worried that it has to do something with like anesthesia if I ever get like emergency have to get put under and I don't want to tell them that I, oh, I barely drink and I don't do drugs at all. So, and so then they just give me like the, the littlest bitty drip of morphine or whatever when I, when I have to go have surgery and I'm like, no, I'm awake the whole time. I felt everything. Yeah. I don't want that to happen. So I'm very, I'm always like, this is exactly how much I've been drinking. This is exactly the the drugs I do, this is exactly all of it. I'm very specific about it. <clears throat> yeah. But the uh, the study was showing that uh, on the limits of like alcohol abuse, like where it becomes like damaging to your organs and to your brain cells and stuff, as long as at, from a male perspective, if you're limiting yourself to the the cap of four drinks per day, and that can be every day, like you're still beneath the threshold of like where you're going to cause permanent damage. It's going to suck. Like if you just maintain that all the time, you might not have a great life. You might like struggle with some other areas. You might, you know, show up late for work or have poor job performance because you're hungover sometimes. Like standard of life might not be great if you maintain that every single day all the time. But you'd have to escalate that up quite a bit more to start to get into the real damage damage causing level of alcoholism which okay. just show which also shows you like man there is a difference between the people that like slam you know four beers every night after work and the people who have who have such a dependency that they have to wake up and they're drinking the equivalent of 15 to 20 drinks every day just to maintain their you know, their homeostasis type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, that's good to know. Cause I certainly, uh, haven't looked those sorts of things up, but it is, you know, it is the, the liver is like an amazing organ. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's one that I, I really, it's not one, it's not a top organ for me, but the, what it has evolved to do is like insane that it can break down, you know, like pretty much any toxin. Right. That and you're then, and then, and, and then also maintain like the component parts of that where you're like, Oh yeah, we could use this again. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the thing with breaking it down. That is, that is going to, you know, kind of blow your mind here. Um, so, uh, everything in the liver, you know, it'll get, broken down eventually um and so you know the blood will circulate through your body and then it'll eventually get passed back through the liver um before it 
goes back into your circulation and stuff. And so that's how your your liver leaches out the everything. I found conflicting numbers on this too. Um, between, it obviously depends on the person. You know, each person's different. Yeah, genetics um, play a big role in it too. Genetics play a huge role. Um, and, you know, even these studies, it, it depends on which populations they're looking at. Uh, but I, it's around seven grams of ethanol per hour that can be metabolized. Um, but that can, the range is like anywhere from 10 to 30, uh, milligrams per deciliter per hour. Yeah. And, yeah. That's what I was, I was finding on some of those studies too. Like the, the variance rate was like over 200% <laughs> between yeah, like individuals, <laughs> which is wild to think about. But also when you, you know, that's, that's what makes this so tangible is people can, you can recognize that in like the groups of people you go out with, you know? Oh yeah, um, like I I've got the friends who are part of that whatever 23 to 28% cohort of humans are like, yeah, I I could drink all night long and I've never had a hangover in my life. <laughs> yeah. Type of, type of folks. Yeah. Um so it's it's one of those things that uh it it varies uh significantly, but if you're whenever you're looking at the stuff too, if you look at um like say 20 milligrams per deciliter, that is the scale that people are used to understanding because it translates to like that 20 milligrams per deciliter translates to 0.02% uh, blood alcohol content. So it's 0.0XX for however many milligrams. Okay. Um, so what does that and, work out like? You metabolize one drink per hour or something like that? One drink per... I'm so, trying to do math in my head and I'm I'm I think I'm... I might be doing something wrong on the rate. Well, there's there's also conflicting results on that because some say a standard drink is 14 grams of ethanol. And then I've also seen other studies say that you can metabolize 17 grams of ethanol versus, set, or I'm sorry, 14 grams of ethanol instead of seven. So it depends. It's either one or two hours per standard drink that it takes to fully okay. metabolize it. Um, and, but one drink yeah. would be a 0.02. Okay. Um, for like a 70 kilogram person. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the, we all know that like people who abuse alcohol, like severely have a much higher tolerance and I'll get into that in just a second, but the percentages can go wild. Like alcoholics can have a blood alcohol content of 0.7%, um, <laughs> which is so high. <laughs> That's so high. Oh, man. Jeez. I think the other thing, too, with like blood alcohol uh, concentration or blood alcohol content or whatever, um, people get confused whenever you hear like, a, you know, a 0. 0.08. People are like, oh, I know percentages. Uh, 0. 0.08. Is, yeah. If you had 8% <laughs> alcohol dead. in your, you're dead. <laughs> you have in your, your blood vessels 40% is red blood cells. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had a fifth of that as ethanol molecules, you would die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, I I just I just blew a point a point one two on the fucking breathalyzer. Fuck a twelve percent alcohol in my system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The point is very important. Uh, that is a percentage. <laughs> um. And 
you know, I didn't, I looked into the, the breath analyzer a little bit, but, uh, it's, it's kind of complicated. Supposedly that the amount that you exhale, uh, is, and that the breath analyzer can detect is exactly the amount that's like the concentration that's in your blood. So that's how they say, but people with like high, like people who are diabetic have higher mm-hmm. um, acetones or something in their breath. And so they're going to probably have a much higher rating. And those things are, you know, not great at detecting it. And you should never blow into a breath analyzer. Never. Um, well, because they're not calibrated to you, the individual. Right. <laughs> they're calibrated um, to whatever general calibration is. And that's not specific to you. And the things that I was reading about, you know, when you excrete the remnants of the alcohol that your liver is in the can't can't fully process. So whatever that eight percent that's left uh, comes out through your sweat and through your breath. So like part of that analysis would lead me to believe that if you've been pounding lots of drinks and the your system's all backed up at the end of the night, like you're probably going to blow higher because more of the excess ethanol is leaving your system through your sweat and through your respiration rather than if you just had a glass of scotch with dinner, like, are you even going to be uh, exhausting that from your mouth at that point? Or do you have to have like four glasses before you really are going to be starting to blow positive on a breathalyzer I, I don't i don't that that's that was confusing to me yeah i mean supposedly you are um but it's it's one of those things that yeah it, it depends on the person obviously i don't think anyone should drive after drinking like, right and if you drink on a, you if you drink after, one drink on a totally yeah. empty stomach and so it just goes right in are you more likely to blow positive on a breathalyzer than if you had a full stomach and you drank four drinks and it's just really slow in the process of getting down to getting to your liver and affecting you and you haven't got to the point yet to where you're exhausting it through your mouth and your sweat glands. See, the the reason why I think it would come out in your breath is because that concentration level, you have it in your bloodstream and then that blood is going to the lungs okay. and diffusing into your lungs and then out your breath. Um, But that's... That's my hypothesis on it. Um, so just the amount you have in your bloodstream would be able to be detected uh, on your breath. And obviously, like the the BAC from a breath analyzer is only an estimate. It's not if you had blood drawn, uh, then it's going to be like one hundred percent accurate. Right. Um, just just but, just the cautionary tale. Don't don't take a breathalyzer even if you're totally not drunk and you're trying to prove it to the cop. Just uh, yes. those things are have way too many variables that are not accounted for that then one one poorly measured device could cause you lots of consequences in your life. <laughs> yeah. At the point that they want you to blow into the breath analyzer or do a field sobriety test, they they have concluded that they're taking you in. Yeah. Um so I I don't think we need to yeah, I'm pretty sure most people know that, but just in case, <laughs> uh, the cops are not your friends. Um, this is not Japan. Uh, and so once it gets to the 
liver and it's in the hepatic cells, uh, this is where ethanol gets metabolized and there's multiple different pathways for it to be metabolized. There's um, the one way with like a, a normal amount of alcohol is it goes through alcohol dehydrogenase. It, uh, uh, the ASE at the end means it's an enzyme. So that means it's a proton, enzyme protein, proton means the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is alcohol, so ethanol dehydrogenase so it takes away hydrogen um takes away hydrogens and this is where the bulk of ethanol breakdown into acetaldehyde occurs so it turns a big scary one (laughs) into acetaldehyde uh which is very toxic i think it is like 30 times more toxic than ethanol Mm -hmm. um the interesting thing though is that alcohol dehydrogenase is a reversible reaction so your body, if you did have like an excess of acetaldehyde for whatever reason, could turn it into ethanol so that it's less toxic at the time before it can finally process everything down. Um, so that's very interesting. Well, and it was thought um, in one of the earlier studies I read, it was thought that that was probably maybe the cause of the hangover type effects because of how more toxic it was to the body. But then in later studies, they were like, yeah, this isn't the smoking gun people thought it was because of how short-lived that it is inside of the body. Right. Yeah. Acetaldehyde, because it's so toxic, your body has other protons that are um, have high affinity for it. So we'll suck it up so that they can break it into something less, less toxic. Just acetate. Um, yes. <laughs> um, acetate, acetic acid, same thing. Acetic acid, uh, which is in, you know, like vinegars and stuff mm-hmm. like that. That's the vinegar that gives it that of, uh, uh, that's the acid that gives it that tanginess. Um, and so, but acetaldehyde can get into your blood and that's where you have like bad feelings from alcohol. Um, and that's where, well, uh, real quick, the, the, the other ways that ethanol can be broken down whenever you have an excess of alcohol, um, it will also go through a different protein. So the ADH, the alcohol dehydrogenase is overloaded. They're, you know, nearing max capacity with ethanol, they're breaking down. And so another proton kicks in, uh, which is located in the microsomes called uh, CYP2E1. And that one, um, this is where you get like the damaging effects from alcohol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is the proton that, although it turns ethanol into acetaldehyde, it also releases uh, reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species are uh, superoxide anion, uh, which is O2 negative, uh, hydrogen peroxide, which you shouldn't drink, and uh, hydroxyl <laughs> radical. So it's like a an H and an O with just like one electron, um, I believe. Uh, radicals always confused me. But the issue here is that all of those are extremely reactive, as they say in the name, with things like uh, DNA and uh, mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. So they will they will screw up your cell's ability to make copies of 
itself or code for proteins and it'll screw up your energy making molecule uh organelle in each protein etc baby right um and because it can also make hydrogen peroxide there is a third pathway that ethanol can be turned into acetaldehyde and that is through the proton uh catalase that turns hydrogen peroxide into water Uh, hydrogen peroxide is just h2o2 and water is just h2o Mm -hmm. um so it takes an oxygen off that but you know adds it to whatever so once you have the acetaldehyde it then goes through a seat uh it goes through aldehyde dehydrogenase so aldh and this is the proton that's uh, you know, 50% of people in Eastern Asian populations have a mutation that causes it to not be as effective. Um, so this is why you get the buildup of acetaldehyde in those certain populations that have the negative effects of drinking alcohol so much so that, as you were saying, what, 28% fewer people are alcoholics because mm-hmm. they're just like, I don't want to drink. Yeah. It doesn't. It's actually. It actually feels like poison to me because that's what my body turns it into as poison. (laughs) Right. It's not a fun experience. I don't even Uh, get to the point of the hangover. It's not. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's pretty wild that just that one proton. You know, you would think like uh, that's a mutation that is like you know detrimental or whatever. But if you're looking at when you think of evolution and you look at the long term of evolution. Um, is that a mutation that causes, you know, humans to do better (laughs) because you decrease the amount of alcohol they're consuming? Um, so it's something to kind of contemplate when you think of like evolution on that scale, you know? Yeah. And it's, I mean, alcohol has been sort of, uh, commingled with all of human evolution for, you know, tens of thousands of years i mean it's it's in the records as far back as we have written records so yeah. uh the idea that there would be some sort of co-evolution between ethanol and the human experience of how to process this foreign substance to our to our homeostasis would make would make sense especially if you had it across isolated cultures for long enough periods of time to where they would like uh, procreate with this type, these types of inhibitions kind of in mind as part of their environment. Yeah. And you can also take this to then totally understand how other populations of species are like, um, what is it? Isn't like eucalyptus poisonous to, to most animals, but just the, you know, koala bear has, yeah, has a mutation where, their body no longer broke it down into the dangerous thing, or I, I'm not sure which one it is, or broke it down into a less toxic substance. Um, so this is like the same thing that's going on that is currently happening to humans. Like humans are still evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just because we're here right now and we know about evolution, we don't rest necessarily always keep it in mind yeah it's it's Um, similar to the same sort of uh genetic mutations that arise in early humans that allow us to eat other types of grain it's the same as the genetic mutations that 
arise where we developed the ability to uh, metabolize uh, cow and goat's milk when we didn't really have that ability before. Um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's environmentally structured <laughs> type of pressure that <laughs> causes your metabolism to change or genetics to change. And then when those happen over enough time, then that one gets picked up as as a thing for the population. And I believe it is the ALDH proton uh, or proteins. I think I've said proton multiple times. I mean protein. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's cool. Everyone knows what you mean. Uh, acetaldehyde, you know, being so toxic, I'm pretty sure it's the one that turns acetaldehyde into acetate that is the basis of the drunk monkey theory that like 10 million years ago, the common ancestor between us and chimpanzees had a mutation that then broke acetaldehyde from the toxic form into the less toxic acetate. Um, and so it opened up a food source much greater because we could eat like very ripe or nearly fermenting fruit. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it wouldn't, it turned it from killing us into a potential food source. We even pick the stuff up off the ground. We don't got to fucking climb up in the trees and get the fresh berries. Right, right. Uh, so through this, um, through these processes, your body then takes acetate and and through another protein, um, acetyl-CoA synthase, uh, turns it into acetyl-CoA, which is used for so much stuff in the body that it's, that is, whenever this popped up, I remembered learning, like it was a flashback to learning about this stuff <laughs> because acetyl-CoA came up all the time and it sucks. It, it is in too many complicated pathways. Um, it's, it's the one Lego piece that everybody needs. It, I mean, it literally is because acetyl-CoA uh, is very important to the citric acid cycle, which is the TCA cycle, mm -hmm. which is the uh, Krebs cycle. All three of them are the same. And I, again, don't know why they're all the same. Hey, we, we um, talked about it. It was an episode back there in like the 60s some odd episode number. <laughs> right. Well, I've had a few drinks since then, obviously. Um, but in the the electron transport chain, we spoke about those different protons that are passing er, proteins. different proteins that are passing protons. See, this is where yeah, it yeah, gets tricky. Where I see, yeah, I get you. <laughs> um, in order to have electrons move through so that your body can make energy. Well, between complex one and complex two, there is a need for the citric acid cycle to create this other energy molecule called NADH and FADH2 mm -hmm. uh, that are uh, coenzymes. They're, they're like their energy, they're little batteries for those proteins, the complex one and complex two, so that electrons can be passed through them. Um, so your body essentially turns ethanol into something that can be used to make energy in in your body the thing is it's making acetyl coa um like all the time naturally acetaldehyde occurs naturally in coffee bread and ripe fruit so your body's absorbing it so don't think that this is like permission to drink because you need it to you <laughs> yeah, know, create energy yeah. <laughs> in your body yeah man i need to i need energy <laughs> and so um you know we're going kind of long so i want to try to um, i don't mean to harp on all this stuff too much but the 
drinking to excess through all of these processes, all of these pathways, uh, means that you're going to be creating an increase in NADH, which is, I just mentioned in the citric acid cycle, mm-hmm. but that's kind of a, a molecule that is needed to create energy. It's like, it's not as powerful as ATP, but it's needed in order to make ATP. It's like a, you know, it's, it's somebody. It's a starter pushing, fluid. It's a primary. Yeah. You're pushing the donkey to, to yeah. rotate the thing, to grind whatever. Um, so it's it's very important, and you think, okay, well, it creates more of that. Why would that be a bad thing? That means your body's normal process of creating it gets backed up, and a lot of the pathways that are used to create NADH, uh, the the proteins are reversible. Um, so the one or the ones that use NADH rather. So you have. Let me search my notes. I'm trying to find it. Here we go. So glycolysis, the breakdown of glucose mm-hmm. into um, things that you can use for energy, uh, like glucose is broken down in multiple steps yeah. and turned into stuff that can be used for energy. That uses uh, NADH, and it turns... Uh, in the normal situation, glucose can be broken down through these steps uh, and used for energy by turning NAD plus into NADH. But since it's reversible and there's so much NADH from drinking alcohol, your body reverses it and essentially creates more glucose molecules. So it cannot be broken down. So it's like we got all these extra base pieces. Let's just build the, build the stuff that we were supposed to break down. And if if you give it, if you give it a bunch of, if you give it a bunch of fundamental pieces, it'll build the thing. But if you give it the thing, then it'll break that thing down to the fundamental pieces. Right. And this is occurring like in the uh, liver, which is where like a lot of glucose gets broken down so that it can then circulate to the rest of your body and provide mm-hmm. energy. So it's it's essentially storing glucose there and storing potential energy that cannot be used in the rest of the body. Um, same thing with lactic acid, um, lactic acid can be turned into pyruvate, um, but that's reversible as well. So you have a buildup of lactic acid. Um, the citric, uh, acid cycle I already spoke about. So it essentially, the, the one step in the citric acid cycle, which is a bunch of different molecules getting, you know, losing an oxygen and gaining a carbon and all this stupid stuff. Um, one of those is reversible, so it essentially stops that process. So you cannot you're not, have the electron transport chain operate. You're not Krebbing anymore. No longer Krebbing. Um, gluconeogenesis. So this is a, a <laughs> sounds stupid that you have another reverse process that is turning things into glucose. Um, <laughs> you have one breaking them down, and <laughs> now you have excess glucose. But now you're, you know. You can't make more glucose. We already have the glue. Yeah, I know it's stupid, but um, the problem with gluconeogenesis being screwed up by having so much NADH uh, is the uh, this can lead to hypoglycemia mm-hmm. because the pyruvate cannot be converted into glucose in the liver, which would then be transported to other things. Um, and then it can also lead to fatty acid oxidation. And this is the one where having 
that large amount, you have like glycerol, which is three carbons. Each carbon has an oxygen on it. Um, and then you add that to a fatty acid, which are like uh, carbon double bound to an oxygen, bound to an oxygen, bound to a chain of hydrocarbons. Um, this is what fats are. Mm-hmm. And this is literally the cause of like fatty liver disease. Yeah. Um, you just have too many fats building up in your body because they cannot be oxidized. So you then get like fat literally just accumulating in your liver, which fats are huge molecules and they essentially just take up space in your liver. So it you can't don't have do room for anything else. Yeah. Is this, is that the same thing as cirrhosis? Uh, cirrhosis is a scarring. So that is from like cell death and okay. everything. So, um, fatty liver diseases, you have a ton of fat and then, you know, it, I think it can be caused by fatty liver disease. So it's like in, the precursor. Yeah. Like it would, the fats would cover a cell or they would embed themselves in the cell, uh, membrane so that the flow of oxygen or something can't get to the cell. So the cell dies and scars okay. instead of, um, you know, being healthy. So that's like what all the bad stuff is with drinking. That's how it gets broken down and excess drinking causes all of these different cycles to stop in your body. And it literally just halts your cells, normal activity. Um, which, you know, you imagine the bad thing about drinking is like your brain um, or your liver just needing to work hard. And it's not that your liver needs to work hard that wears it out. Your liver can work very hard and mm-hmm. recover. It's that all of these other processes are killing cells, essentially. Simultaneously. Over prolonged use. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, well, and and it's why there's not the, uh, there's there's not been, even after... You know, go, I, the earliest study that I read where people were really trying to figure out hangovers like from a medical standpoint was like in the 50s. So mm-hmm. there's not this pinpoint, okay, we figured it out. This is the exact process that's going on that's causing you to have the bad feelings the next day. So now we created a medication that is the cure for hangovers. And if you just take this the night before you go to sleep after a night of drinking, you'll never feel a hangover again. While there are lots of products like that that are for sale, <laughs> they're all a bunch of woo. Um, the uh, the explanation that Eric just went through is just to show you that there is a lot of different processes going on, and all of those are correlatively related to the symptoms that you feel when you have the hangover. But then any single one of them is not the causation of the hangover uh, symptoms or the disease of hangover, which is, you know, gets to the one, we could talk about like the ideas of cures for it, but two, the, also the idea of from, from a medical standpoint, uh, this isn't something that's really like a, a thing you cure. Uh, it's not like diabetes or something else that you're trying, that you can, address in ways medically through um, medicine or through other some kind of other chemical intervention uh, to stop that process from happening or suddenly re- make the body wake up and stop doing the thing that it's doing by reversing these processes and not processing enough ethanol through the liver. You can't do a thing that makes it speed this thing up. 
Like you can't, <laughs> you can't supercharge your pro your liver process. There's not a thing that does that. I mean, the the thing with like proton proteins is they work very fast. Mm -hmm. It like everything is working <laughs> like as fast at as maximum yeah. speed. If you saw it in real time, you would your mind would be blown at the speed at which it's flowing. Um, but the you know ethanol. Uh, molar mass is um 46.07 grams per mole i oh god wait hold on you keep talking you vent. <laughs> I, I need to do <laughs> well it's it's, it's very much like when we left the uh rage against the machine concert you know and you were all sitting there in a field and that was turned into a parking lot and there's only one way out of the parking lot <laughs> and there's yeah. 15,000 cars parked in this field with only one way out so you could make everyone hurry up and get in a line and then like all honk their horns and yell at each other, but it's not going to make the parking lot like empty out any faster. Like there's, there's, there's only one rate at which this parking lot is going to empty. So you might as well just find a way to be comfortable as com make yourself as comfortable as possible and just wait for your turn to leave the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause you're just, you're, it's, any other any other effort is futile like the the real cure for the hangover is just time yeah i was trying to find the number of molecules there are in like one gram of of ethanol but i forgot how to do molar math um <laughs> but I, I know that a mole is 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd and i i believe that would mean that you're taking the I forget. There's a lot. There's a lot of <laughs> you're you're there's billions of molecules going through these things. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say. And an um, incredibly fast processing rate and incredibly fast breaking everything down. That's why the you know, the 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 most toxic forms of the breaking down process aren't that much of a concern generally because they're don't they're not around that long. Um but yeah. The uh, there is no there is no cure so far. And then the question, you know, from the the moral police or whatever, the behavioral police is if even if we were capable of creating a cure for a hangover, would we want to do it? Because isn't that somehow like a way of your body just telling you, giving you feedback that you did something to excess that you should probably not do again? Uh, type of type of thing and I from a more morality standpoint I'm, I'm not convinced by the morality argument although I am somewhat un understanding that uh, it it would not make sense for the uh, just general health of humanity if you could make a pill that people could take and not feel any of the <laughs> negative consequences from massive ethanol intake like you would just end up with a lot of people who die from alcohol poisoning <laughs> because people yeah. love alcohol. It's a, it's an addictive dependency based thing. And so if you were able to turn off you feeling bad the next morning, like people would just drink themselves to death. They'd never stop. Yeah. I, but it's not, this is where, you know, I get so hung up when people talk about, um, morality when it comes to like biology and stuff because this is not your body telling you yeah yeah <laughs> you you overdid something it is just the 
natural reaction to it. And your brain can comprehend that, okay, I drank too much or whatever. Um, but you know, are you gonna, those people would flip out if you took that morality to like morning sickness right. or somebody being pregnant and, you know, this is your body telling you, you should not have been pregnant. Yeah. Like, <laughs> obviously not. Um, but you know, that's, that's why it's fun to know biology, right? Oh yeah. If you, if you could take, if you could just take a pill that made you not feel pain. Like this, it would yeah. be very bad for all humans involved. Humanity would not last very long if all of a sudden we could just not feel pain. We would all be dead in like five years tops. I'd give us all five years tops before everyone on the planet would be dead. Yeah, I never understood that James Bond villain. Um, <laughs> he can still die. Yeah, <laughs> uh, quite obviously. <laughs> it's 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 not a shortcut to a happy life. Um, no. yeah, I think the, the only other things on, on hangovers for me, the, the, where's the, just the diuretic aspect of alcohol and, you know, the idea that you want to mix in, you know, water while you're, while you're doing your binge drinking, you know, mix in water layers every once in a while to try to help with that process. But it's not going that it's in general, a good idea, but it will not prevent your hangover if you uh drink to excess like you can mix in a water for every single uh shot you take but if you do enough shots you're still going to feel like shit the next day it's not the diuretic effect of alcohol being that the reason you get dehydrated is that the alcohol um inhibits the functionality of your body where it will hold in the urine basically it just opens the floodgates so it just pisses out everything and it's not just pissing out the alcohol it's pissing out all of the fluids in your body so as you make that fourth or fifth trip to the bathroom at the bar eventually what happens and why you'll like get the headache one of the reasons why I was looking up why do you get the Budweiser headache when you're just pounding Budweiser's part of it is because at a point you pee out so much that your body then goes to your brain water reserves and starts to pull water from there in order to hydrate your body because you just basically the the all the tubes for for water are just open to just fall right out of your right out of your penis or your vagina hole so you you just have to uh know that it is, it, that's not what where pee comes from for uh female anatomy but go ahead okay continue. <laughs> <laughs> it's all down there <laughs> but the uh just the the dehydration effect of the of the headache is like you have uh you have gone to the emergency reserves of the water in your body to hydrate yourself and your body's like well we're just gonna have to take it from the brain <laughs> and then you then you get the headache yeah, the the other thing with like the brain is um ethanol blocks a couple different receptors and stuff too. Uh or it it binds to receptors rather so that neurotransmitters don't work in your brain. And we've spoken about neurotransmitters plenty of times, but the two of them are like GABA and glutamate. Um and GABA uh blocks like impulses uh between nerve cells. But if ethanol binds to its receptor and doesn't cause that signal to pass, then it it 
doesn't block certain things. So um, ethanol binding to GABA receptors is thought to be responsible for the sedative effects of ethanol. Um, and in contrast, the glutamate receptor uh, referred to as NMDA is critical for like learning and memory. And so it blocks that. So glutamate cannot bind to it. And uh, that's why you have, you know, sort of amnesia sometimes if you mm -hmm. drink too much. Um, the thing with glutamate though, that your brain does is whenever it seems, this is like a theory, but whenever it is not being received, your brain overcompensates for it by producing more glutamate um, once it's able to, to try to get those signals to go. Obviously it makes sense. Uh, memory is very important. So mm -hmm. your brain wants to be forming memories and uh, the glutamate rebound, they call it, is one theory for why like bright light and noise can be so annoying like during a hangover um, because the glutamate is just way more active. So your body is way more receptive to those things. Same with headache. Um, it, acetaldehyde dilutes, dilates blood vessels. And so new research suggests that alcohol may cause your immune system to attack your body and release chemicals that irritate the blood vessels and nerves that leads to pain, including headaches. Mm -hmm. So it's glutamate rebound plus the acetaldehyde. Um, but and then like stomach upsetness is just from alcohol damaging your stomach and intestinal lining. Yeah, yeah. I always thought, oh, the reason I have a nausea, nausea and I, I'm puking up and stuff is because oh, my liver's taxed. So the only way to get this out is my body's trying to puke out the the alcohol that it can't process. But that's not that's not what's going on. Your your actual the ethanol causes a reaction in your stomach that increases the stomach acid that you're that you have so depending on what yeah. you ate depending on all of those other things how that reacts if you already have like stomach acid issues or you already have digestive problems and then you add ethanol into that fire in your stomach then it's going to cause things to get worse um and uh eat away some of that stomach mucosal lining um which can then make things even more irritated and more acid problems, which then gets you more nauseous and causes you to puke. Uh, so it's not your body trying to heave up these, this alcohol. You drank too much, so it's going to puke up the, the amounts that it can't process, and you'll feel so much better. The reason you feel better after puking is the endorphin release in your brain. It's not because you just, <laughs> ooh, I just puked out those extra two beers that put me over the edge. Now I'm fine. I can go back and drink some more. That, the, the euphoric feeling has nothing to do with you getting rid of some of that alcohol in your bloodstream. <laughs> yeah, which you know totally makes sense for throwing up the next day. You still don't have alcohol in your stomach but yeah yeah it's just because you got so much acid going on that uh, even a nice sparkling water will not do the trick <laughs> all right man well that's pretty much all i got uh i'm glad i'm glad you're you survived your worst hangover of your life <laughs> my only hangover oh uh, it'll happen again oh breaking news Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. She did? She did. She kicked the bucket. She did. Now the now the um, question to know is was was this really her or was this like just the last body double they had? Cuz I I've always wondered did the real queen die like 20 years ago and they've just had body doubles that they've just been waiting for the last one to die off 
You know, that's why they they haven't been letting her go out in public or make speeches or do anything because they've just been like, on this last this last body double. Once she dies, then we really got to deal with this monarchy crisis. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't quite know about it, but I've never really looked into it. I think the concept of uh, royalty is uh, should have never existed. Very outdated. Um, well, so you don't believe that you don't believe in the kingdom of heaven or the royal no. the royal family of Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I certainly do not. Um, but the the other thing, you know, like I was watching a interview with uh, Joe Talbot, the lead singer of Idols, the other day. Okay, as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about the royal family, and he was saying, so this is cited from him that the royal family supposedly brings in more money than they cost the taxpayer, like based off of tourism. I don't know about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree because I could, I don't know how many people are traveling to or within the UK solely to see the royal family or the palace or whatever, you know? Right. seems like a adding on to it, but um, it's it's one of those uh, we should build a baseball stadium in your in your city because it's going to bring uh, I don't know five hundred million dollars a year in revenue. I would just pull a number out of thin air and say that's what it is, and everyone will believe. Yeah, it. <laughs> I mean he's certainly not on the queen's side, um, but he also stated, you know how like in the UK their food banks have exploded in number in the last like twenty years. Um, I did not know that, but okay. So food banks, you know, where people can get food that are poor and they can't afford food. Um, NHS, big, you know, government thing that they're trying to privatize, but run by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, all their food banks, not run by the government at all. The government is not like giving food to people who are poor and can't afford it. 100% charity based. <laughs> so, But you know who I the government the, does give food to? Who's that? The royal family. <laughs> exactly. The having a royal family, I think, is just uh, anathema to a modern society. But you know, here will come Justin to argue for no, but uh, having a royal family. But I mean, who who gets it now? Is it does it go to Charles, or is he too old and they're just gonna, or does he not get it because he married a commoner? Does he is he out because he married it a commoner? Says to go straight uh, to Will. No, they said the king, uh, the king. Philip's Come not, on. Philip doesn't get to be king now. Just because. just, I was just reading where they said so-and-so is the king and they removed the tweet. Because they um, don't know. This is what I'm telling you. We're about to see like old school fucking succession, line of succession shit go down. It's like Charles is going to yeah. get murdered. William's going to be in charge of it. Someone's going to murder William's kids. Kate's going to get all distraught. It's going to be a thing. Prime Minister Truss is speaking in her confident tone. Uh, she, what, Charles she, is now. Are, are, they, are they all suspicious of her because she was the last one to talk to the Queen alive? <laughs> you know, she does have kind of a look to her, doesn't yeah. she? Boris is coming out saying, she wouldn't have died if I was still Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm very excited to see what will happen with Ireland. Make me prime minister again. I'll bring the queen back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I'm so glad that we could break that news to yeah, everyone. Yeah, we did it. We we held on to this podcast long enough just so it could happen. I'm sure um, Dragon Bragg will not talk <clears throat> about it. The queen is dead. Long live the queen. <laughs> Go off. <laughs> All right, great job. <laughs> Bye.